0: say you fall off and break your leg that you're not going to the hospital down there and if your leg heals wrong or something happens where you're permanently crippled that there's nobody there to take care of you if you're lucky you might have a, a child or something that can go out and make money you are listening to the horse radio network part of the equine network family
1: Welcome to The Ride, a biweekly podcast brought to you by Horse and Rider Magazine, co-hosted by Nicole Cherico and Devin Conley. In each episode, we chat with some of the industry's top trainers, clinicians, horsekeeping experts, and professionals to share inspiring stories, training philosophies, and the importance of living your
2: best Western horse life. On this episode of The Ride Podcast, Nicole and Devin sit down to talk with J.B. Zilke. He's a world-traveling cowboy that has been to six different continents working for farms and ranches. He's been immersed in a variety of horse cultures worldwide, and he recently released a book of his wild adventures called The Lost Cowboy. We chat with J.B. about everything he experienced as he traveled the world and the incredible horsemen he encountered along the way.
1: This week's episode of The Ride is brought to you by the Seen Through Horses campaign. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Ride. I'm Nicole. I'm here with my co-host, Devin, and today we are with Jake Zelke, who is a world-traveling cowboy that's been to six continents working for different ranches. Um, You've been a part of different horse cultures worldwide, and you also are releasing a book on your adventures. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us, Jake. I know you are a very busy guy. In fact, we weren't sure which continent you were on when we reached out to you. but for those who might not be familiar with you or follow you on social media, um, can you just kind of fill our listeners in on your horse background and, and what kind of attracted to you to this Western way of life?
0: Yeah. Um, so I I grew up in uh, in northern Colorado, and uh, my my family didn't really have anything to do with uh, agriculture or horses or anything. So at a fairly young age, I uh, my mom had a, a friend, uh, that invited me out to come to her place. She had a ton of horses and she wanted me and my brothers to come out and just get on and try it. I was probably seven years old. <clears throat> so got on and I was just immediately hooked. And I used to ride my bike every day, go work for free, make five bucks here and there as a little kid. And, um, and horses pretty quickly to me progressed into like cattle and, and ranching, um, by the time I was 10 or 12. Uh, and then I got into, uh, got into rodeo rode rode bulls for a while, went to college, went to the university of Wyoming on a, on a scholarship to ride bulls on the rodeo team. Um, but the whole time really all the jobs I've ever had have been kind of based around, uh, horses and, and livestock, both, um, and that, that's really all I've ever, ever done. It was something I've been passionate about since I was, I was pretty young.
2: And I feel like we talked to a lot of people that weren't born into the industry, but found their way there pretty quickly. And I always think that that's such a cool story because it just proves that like, you don't have to be born into this industry in any part of it um, to make it your livelihood or to make it your career. If you have the passion, if you have the drive, you know, that's what matters. Um, so that was a, a good little like intro into your foray into agriculture and horses and everything. Where does the idea come from to cowboy on six continents? Like, did you sit down someday with a globe and and be like, these are the places I'm going to go to or walk me through this. Was this something you always wanted to do to just come out of the blue?
0: Um, <clears throat> so it was not, uh, it wasn't like a grand plan to, to go do that. When I was in college, towards the end of college, I <clears throat> kind of hung up my bull rope and I'd had enough injuries and I, really I was not a very good bull rider. So I was just getting myself hurt more than anything. So I quit doing that and it left kind of a void, uh, in my life and, and I needed some excitement, some adventure. So, uh, there was a, a girl that was doing study abroad at the university of Wyoming and she was from Australia. And I asked her if she could get me work in Australia. Um, and she was hesitant at first, but she ended up giving me the contact info for a guy over there. Uh, it was her brother. And so I contacted him and set up a, uh, he, he said he would hire me if I would show up at the right time and right place and really gave me very little info. And so I, just packed up my stuff and, uh, I had one semester of college left at this point. So it was during the kind of summer break that three, four month period. And I went to Australia, um, caught, caught wild feral bulls over there. Um, we were horseback half the time on dirt bikes, the other half the time. And, um, when I got back from there, finished school, uh, that at that point in time, I had no uh, dreams of doing any more traveling. I thought that was kind of I graduated college and I thought, all right, time to go get a big boy job and and be a part of society. And uh, I did that for about a year. Um, I managed a fairly large outfit in South Central Wyoming. Uh, and when I, I ended up getting fired from that job after a while, it was uh pretty tough and and I I was thinking well, I I should probably just go back to what I what I enjoyed doing and 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 traveling so then it really took off because I I I had I had tried the being a normal member of society and and that was kind of boring and not really my cup of tea so I I went back to traveling and it took off I think that <clears throat> that next summer it, somebody said to me, I don't know if it was my little brother or who it was, they, they said, you know, at this point you've worked as a cowboy in North America and Australia. And at that point I had been to Argentina too. I guess I skipped over that. But um, <clears throat> he said, you're halfway there, so why not go for the other half? So uh, that that was really when it became a goal, but that was two, three years into it.
1: So when you originally kind of made this plan to go about doing this, how did you figure out what countries you were visiting, you know, when you were visiting them, um, how were you networking with all these people and, and kind of connecting with these people? Because I, I, would, I would assume that when you're going to different continents, you only know so many people abroad, you know, I, I would imagine you had to kind of expand your network to kind of reach out to more people and, and kind of make this plan a reality.
0: That's right. Um, So each what I tried to do in in each of the different places I went to is just find one person that I didn't necessarily have to know them, but had an opportunity for me, whether that be a job or just a place to stay or something like that. And once you have your foot in the door with just one person, it it makes it a lot easier to make arrangements to travel down there or wherever you're going. And then. From there, it's very easy to, or at least easy for me. I, I've I've never had a problem networking and finding people once I was in the country, um, and I I, I was kind of just like a stray dog wandering around, and I'd jump in any pickup that had food and a place for me to sleep, and uh, so that mentality is kind of reckless and very dangerous, I guess, because you just have to trust, uh, in strangers most of the time. But if you have no, I I never had really a set itinerary. I never, you know, my only restriction was was money. And so as long as I had had money to continue traveling, um, I would just go wherever there was something cool happening or or people were willing to let me work for them. Most of the time I I worked for free. Um, I just told people that if you you feed me and give me a place to sleep, uh, I'll come work for free. And then that way it wasn't costing me anything. Uh, and it was costing them fairly little. And, and I got a lot of experience out of it that way. So that, that was the the biggest move I figured out. Like if you're, you're not going to get rich going and doing this, at least you're not going to have a pocket full of money, but you'll have a, you'll, you'll have a lot of experiences after having done stuff like that. So that that's really where the value comes from.
2: Yeah, that sounds uh, super dangerous. And (laughs) if you're listening and thinking of doing this, you know, uh, be safe, be careful. (laughs) Um, I mean, I want to hear just like a little description of each place where you went, who you, I mean, you don't have to say like names of who you work for if you don't want, but what you did, if it was always ranching. I know, like, I know you were in Mongolia um, and you spent a lot of time with, you know, horse cultures up there. So just like a little synopsis on each place and what you were doing when you were there uh, just scavenging food and sleeping in trucks.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, so it started with Australia and I was working for a crew where we were contracted by the government to go out and catch feral cattle. So, uh, the bulls were really hard to bring in horseback and they, they probably, a lot of those bulls would probably kill your horse if you rode up too close to them. So a lot of that was done with machines, but there was also a lot of just cows and calves and stuff out there that had no brands on them. So a lot of that work we did with helicopters and horses, we called it coaching them. And we'd, we'd start with a small bunch uh, at the far side of the pasture, right when the sun came up. And then we would just start driving them in the easiest path to the gate, back to the corrals. And then we had helicopters working with us. So, the helicopters would sweep through and kind of push the cattle. And as we came across the whole pasture, the herd would just grow and grow. So our job horseback was not to go out through the brush and find cattle. It was to keep the main bunch together and moving and as calm as possible. Um, so I, I spent, uh, that was the first place I went. And that was what I did pretty much the whole time. Um, after that I went to Argentina. Argentina was uh, I lived with gauchos on a couple different ranches or they call them estancias and they uh, played some polo but a lot of it was just being horseback going out checking cows, moving cows. Labor in in that in Argentina and a lot of countries is super cheap. So having a guy horseback like a lot a lot of those places had tons of they might have had 20 employees on a normal ranch down there, and everybody was horseback at 4 a.m. going out and um, heat check-in or moving cows around or pulling bulls or whatever we were doing. Uh, f- fairly similar to here, ranching operations here. And um, So I worked on a handful of outfits down there doing that. Um, after that would have been Sweden. I went to Sweden for – uh, 90 days because that's as long as uh, a visa lasts in Europe for an American. Uh, went over there and I worked for the biggest uh, branch in Sweden. They don't really exist over there because there's a cap on how much land you can privately own in Sweden. So because of that, it's not really possible to own a, a big ranch over there. So the family I worked for had a, a special situation where they – uh, leased out an entire military base from the Swedish military, and they um they would <clears throat> keep the grass short because they would it was a panzer division or or whatever they call it tanks, so they used these big fields to do drills and practice with their tanks, and they didn't want the grass to be like hip high, so this family had a long term lease on this huge place. And so we, it was pretty regular. We'd be out moving cows around. We, they were the only family, uh, that, that I knew of that moved cows or did anything like that horseback. Most,
2: uh, so Oh, sorry to interrupt you. I just had a quick question. Um, because I think people will find it interesting. Do you know what the cap is in Sweden for like the amount of land you're allowed to own?
0: Uh, I, d- I don't know the exact number. They told me that and they actually pointed it out with the the logging industry over there, because in the United States, logging companies own huge amounts of land because they buy it and just let it sit there and grow trees. But over there, those logging companies were constantly running up against that cap, whatever it was. And so they'd have to buy a piece of land, log it, replant it, and then sell it immediately. So they could buy the chunk next to it and log through that. So that it was like a constant turnover of land. Um, so most most farms and ranches and stuff that you would see in Sweden were, were very small. There was more dairies than there were beef operations. And even the beef operations were kind of – they might have 15, 20 cows kind of in the backyard. They had to uh, – the law down there stated that the cows in the wintertime, any cattle whatsoever, had to be inside of a barn. So just like dairy farms in the U.S. where they have those big open stall barns, even beef cattle were required to be in those type of barns in the wintertime in Sweden. So it was uh, it, it's hard to raise cattle down there. So this family that I worked for was really an exception just because of the laws and restrictions and government oversight on everything that they did. Um, but I don't know the cap. I don't know the number for that. Um, after Sweden, I went down, I went straight from Sweden down to South Africa, uh, and I worked on a handful of different kind of ranch farm operations down there. Um, horses are less common in Africa and it's not because they don't have them. It's because people are, uh, less willing to use them. And the reason They, they would rather walk than ride a lot of times. And the reason for that is because there's no infrastructure and there's no healthcare and there's no safety net to catch you. So a lot of these guys that were out working livestock and stuff preferred to walk because they knew friends who had gotten hurt on horses or they themselves have, but say you fall off and break your leg that you're not going to the hospital down there, and if your leg heals wrong or something happens where you're permanently crippled, that there's nobody there to take care of you. If you're lucky, you might have a a child or something that can make, go out and make money, but most of these people are barely getting by as it is. So horses to them seem like a bigger risk than reward because it was uh, there was still people that used them down there, that specifically guys that come out of this. There's a little landlocked country inside of South Africa called Lesotho. And Lesotho um, is way up high. It's high altitude. It's in the Drakensberg Mountains. And it's, they're very poor and there's not much going on up there other than raising livestock. <clears throat> so a lot of those guys would come down out of the mountains uh, and, and work in South Africa. And those guys were the greatest horsemen that I, that I saw in, in Africa. Their, their culture, because of the mountains and stuff, was much more based around horses than actual South African culture. So it was usually the migrant workers that were using them for the most part. Um, And they rode in saddles that were like $200 saddles made of all nylon and fiberglass. And they were incredibly uncomfortable. And they, they just used them to kind of, to get by because that's what they could afford but they're like their horse pads were usually like dog food sacks just stuffed full of wool so, so they they made a lot of their own equipment but uh the saddles themselves they they didn't really make those and they uh yeah they are pretty awful quality but they made them work um so that's africa and then after Africa, I went to Mexico and I spent a couple of months in Mexico working on a, that was more of a farm than it was a ranch. I still, uh, we still worked cattle and stuff, but a lot of that was like harvesting corn and things like that. And then we had the, uh, the neighbors, I'd go help the neighbors and they'd, they had like an intensive grazing operation where they would move, like put up semi-permanent electric fence and lease land from the neighbors and move their cows around. So um, I got to ride with those folks a lot, just pushing their cows around and uh, doctoring stuff out there wherever they needed it done. Um, and then the last place that I went <clears throat> was Mongolia. And Mongolia is an extremely rich horse culture. The, ma- the majority of that country, I think it's 60 or 70%, is still nomadic which means they may own a car, but for the most part, they they live out of tents and they just ride horses everywhere. And um, everybody down there can ride. It's crazy. It's like it's in their blood. And I I saw, uh, I worked for kind of a touristy type place for a little bit. And there was a, a taxi driver that was bringing some tourists from the airport out to where we were working. And he was driving in a little... Toyota Prius down a two track road, and he saw one of these tourists was having a hard time controlling their horse. And this guy, as far as I knew, was a driver, and that was all he had ever done. And he got out of his taxi, got that person off their horse, he got on the horse, disappeared over the backside of a hill with the horse, came back two, three minutes later, and that horse was acting the way it should. And he put that person right back on the horse and he got back in his taxi and drove off. So it's just, uh, that, that culture is just completely based around the horse and they've, they have been for thousands of years. So they were some of the most impressive horsemen that, that I ever saw. Um, so yeah, that's kind of a very brief, uh, idea of what I did.
1: One in four people experience mental health issues each year. This spring, you can help support mental health awareness and support nonprofit organizations changing lives through horses by joining the second annual Seen Through Horses campaign. Join us May 1st through 31st, 2023 during Mental Health Awareness Month for the Seen Through Horses campaign, and together we can make a much-needed difference for mental health globally. To learn more, visit horsesformentalhealth.org. That's really fascinating, actually. Um, you, you kind of already touched on this when you were talking about Africa and how these guys that you're working with were probably some of the best horsemen that you've been around and, and just their lifestyle and everything kind of uh, forced them to, to learn how to do these things. But can you kind of touch on how horsemanship kind of changes depending on the country or the continent that you're on and and what you've kind of taken away from each of these experiences to apply in your own horse life, your own ranch life, you know?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, it 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 varies a lot, but it's all kind of the same idea. That it's usually, in my experience, the tack was the kind of the biggest difference. Was just how, the different ways they had figured out to do the same thing. Uh, the, the other thing that I noticed was varied a lot on culture was the use of, of leg pressure in, in any way. And, um, so like you look at Argentinians and gauchos and I had always thought that those guys were like super great horsemen and not that they aren't, but they use zero foot pressure like the gauchos and they ride incredibly like uncomfortably long stirrups, but that's just how they, they ride. Um, and it's all just on, on the mouth to just kind of haul their head around. And which was surprising to me because I'd always, now that that's not true with like polo players and, and performance type horses in Argentina. That's a, they're, you know, very on par with what we do here with polo horses. But as far as the gauchos, there was no, foot pressure whatsoever. They, they did a lot of roping down there, but their saddles don't have uh, a tree or any sort of structure to them. So when they rope stuff, they roped tied off to their latigos on the side of their saddle. They just had the rope tied right there. So it was usually tied right down by your right knee. And so it, it that got a little bit hairy quite a few times just because it, but if you think about it, it's off center, but it's actually lower, a lower center of gravity. So those horses, a lot of times, uh, could hold the rope even better because it wasn't pulling on the top of them. So, um, yeah, so, so Argentina was interesting, but, but fairly rough and rudimentary the way that they got by on horses. Um, Australians are, there's not a lot of difference there other than the the saddles that they use but down there they do a lot they do something called camp drafting and that it's basically like reining cow horse type stuff down there and so they they use a lot of the same principles that you would see uh here in the u.s and i think they get a lot of their information from american and canadian trainers and stuff like that so that so not a big difference down there um in in Africa that the way I, I don't know that those guys were like super great horsemen because in in our the way we look at it because uh that like their training was was very different those horses to them those guys that owned those horses that was probably the most expensive thing that they owned and so uh they were really about teaching their horses tricks and uh like had just incredible bonding with their horses but but at the end of the day those horses were um just from getting from point a to point b so there there was i wouldn't say there was any like exceptional training used as far i mean you're not gonna like be cutting cows out of a bunch with african horses and stuff like that there you're not gonna get that type of performance out of a horse but also these guys can like have their horse lay down on command and they lay there with their horse and like snuggle with them. So it was a, it was a very different kind of uh, relationship, I guess, with the horse where they they weren't really working animals. They were like their best friends that they happened to take to work with them. So that that's not a bad thing, but it was different from like a performance horse type of world thing. So, then uh where else do we have? Sweden. Sweden um over there was you know my my view of that's a little bit skewed. I thought they were just because the people I worked for were the only ones that used horses for that type of work. So they imported all of their tack and stuff from the United States and Canada. That entire family had worked in Australia, Canada, and the US on big ranches. So it, that was just like here, but that was specifically because of that family. Other horse people in Sweden, um, I didn't, I wasn't around a lot of them, but everything else, all the other horses in that country, were pets or kind of leisure animals. Where they they maybe did some competitions, but it was like jumping, dressage, or just kind of pasture pets uh, that people just went out and rode for fun. So. The family I worked for there was an exception for sure. Um, and then Mongolia, the the horse culture down – oh, Mexico. I skipped over Mexico. Mexico, same thing, very Americanized. They used American saddles and bits and everything else like that. Not a huge difference down there. I saw some really, really nice horses in Mexico, especially at the rodeos. I'd go to the rodeos, and those ho- – they – could slide like 30, 40 feet. They had some really well-trained horses and I I don't know who owned all of those because I would say half the horses were just like dead broke ranch geldings that you could just go, you know, get a job done on. And then the other half were these like really nice performance horses that were slicked up and they took. you could tell they really took care of them. Um, so then – but Mongolia was kind of – was the wildest and most different. They um, – to, to my – understand, from the way I understand it is that Mongolian horses are not actually horses. They are – I forget what it is. They either have an extra set of chromosomes or they have one less set, same as donkeys. That's why mules are – you know, you end up with uh, – Infertile mules is because there's a missing chromosome there, and these horses that they have down there I was reading in a book are actually closer related to donkeys than they are, like a thoroughbred, so these horses acted different they're small they're dirty, rotten tough I mean they can withstand anything and <clears throat> um, but they're a lot most of them had kind of tiger striped most of them were duns um but they were they, they had kind of different mannerisms than a normal horse. So, uh, the way those people trained down there, uh, they, a lot of those, uh, Colts get bred or broke as yearlings or two-year-olds by, by little kids. And so it was pretty common to see a little kid, like a eight-year-old kid riding a, a yearling around down there. And so they started, as soon as they were able to carry a kid, they started riding them down there and they, uh, they rode with very very short stirrups like almost like a jockey and they they stand way up out of their saddle and the saddles are are also really uncomfortable because they they're kind of like a V shape that you sit down in so when you sit your knees are way up you know by your hands where your reins are and uh, so those guys had rode their whole life as soon as you're going any faster than a walk they're standing up in the stirrups way up above the horse. And I think a lot of that came from they, uh, one, they are hunting or fighting in wars, riding that way. And then also they use, they don't use like a rope, like we would here to catch wild horses. They have a big, long stick. I forget, I forget what they call it, but it has a loop on the end and that's how they would catch stuff. And you have to be kind of standing to do that. So, um, totally different way of riding down there uh but they were I mean those guys at a dead run could just bend down and pick stuff up off the ground uh it was kind of a sport that they played down there and they uh another kind of cool fact about Mongolian horses they their halters they had rope halters on everything and the uh, the piece that went down like under the horse's chin that was actually uh a curb bit that or not a curved bit like a snaffle bit that went right up underneath the 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 horse's chin and it stayed there all the time and it was bent so that it didn't dig into their bones on the bottom of their jaw and um, where that came from is apparently thousand years ago or however long it was when Genghis Khan was' in, was running Mongolia he had a rule that every man in the country had to be ready to go to war within like three or five minutes of getting word so they stopped using bridles altogether and so they just put started putting those snaffle bits on the bottom of the halters. so all you have to do is loosen the knot pop it in their mouth tighten it back up and then the lead rope you just tie it around the other side and hop on and you're ready to go to war so they they still do that nowadays
2: that's a neat little history lesson. Um, I think, are you talking about the Chevalsky horses? It's spelled with like a P starts with a P that mm-hmm. I think those were in Mongolia. Um, that's such a super interesting thing. Um, did you, can you, I'm putting you on the spot here, but can you think of like one specific lesson you learned from some of the horsemen you were around that really stuck with you about horses? Did you, I mean, Anything that you were like, wow, that's a, a new way to look at things, or I really like that training method, or just something that you really liked? Just one thing.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, um, so when I was in Australia, I, I don't claim to be a great horseman. I'm not a horse trainer. I'm. I, I, so I was just learning the whole time with these different people. And uh, in Australia was the first time they gave me a, a colt when I first got there that had I don't know if he'd ever been ridden and if he had, it was probably one or two times and then he was turned back out and had pretty much reverted to being wild. So um, the first day I got on that, that Colt, he tried to, buck. he, he never did buck me off other than one time he, we were at a dead run. He didn't even buck me off. He just spooked out from underneath me and I had to get flown out in the helicopter because of that. But other than that, but he tried to buck me, off a lot. And I hadn't been on a lot of real young horses like that. And, uh, my boss down there was, he was an excellent horseman. And so he was always giving me little pointers and cues on, on, uh, what I should be doing with this horse. And we learned together. I mean, we progressed together a lot, which was pretty cool. And one thing that I'll never forget that that guy told me that that Colt was always, was really hard to catch and really hard to saddle. So we'd, we'd be up in the dark trying to be ready to go by 5 a.m., and everybody else is saddled, and I'm still trying to catch this colt in a big old pen. And so I worked on it a lot. And um, my my boss told me, he said, this goes for cattle and horses or any type of livestock. He said, you should always leave things, uh, leave animals the way that you want to find them. So that, that colt, um, I started, I would never... I would always have him facing me when I turned him out and I would never, if he was jittery and wanting to take off with his friends or anything, I would not turn him loose until he was standing there calm, just facing me. And I made, I I would like rub him down and do all this stuff and just to kind of get him gentle. And the more I did that, the easier he became to catch. And it got to the point where after two or three weeks that I, I would have my horse caught and saddled before everybody else because he'd be standing there at the gate waiting for me. And so I don't I don't know if that's completely true, but for me, it it dang sure worked that I, I started, you know, it's pretty easy at the end of the day to just like take that halter off and throw it on the ground and just let your horse go because you're tired, they're tired. And, and that's what I was doing at first and just changing that. Uh, putting in that little bit of effort. And I mean, it it went further than just catching him as well. I mean, it became, we became a lot more connected and we worked on mentally, we worked on a lot more stuff and that, that was super helpful.
1: I think some people could probably take that advice and and apply it to their horse life in general, I think that's a a great piece of advice. And and it sounds like it helped you a lot. Uh, So through your journeys, you decided to um, come up with a book. How did that kind of start? What was the inspiration behind that? And can you tell
0: us a little bit more about it? Yeah, the I I never intended to write a book, um, kind of towards the end, end of my travels, people made comments like, oh, this could be a book or something like that when I would tell them stories of things that I had done. And um, so I, it, it kind of planted a seed in my mind that I could write a book, but I I didn't think I was capable of that. And so I'd, I thought I would probably just get a ghostwriter or something like that to write the book for me. Uh, and when I was in Mexico, I... I ended up, uh, getting stuck in, I wouldn't say in the middle, but being way too close to a, a big gunfight that went down. Um, and so I was in, in the house I was staying in and, uh, I was staying with my boss's grandparents and his, so his mom's like 70 or 75 years old and she was just terrified and she was telling me to lay on the floor, uh, below the window. So I didn't catch a a stray bullet and there's just gunfire going off in the streets all around me. And I I was laying there for 20 or 30 minutes while this all happened. And I was thinking, you know, it's an, it's entirely possible that I could die doing any of this stuff that I go out and do for fun. So I don't, if, if that's going to happen, I don't want to take all these stories to the grave with me. And so that got me, Writing, I started writing more, journaling more stuff like that, and so when I went back after that, um, it was a few months later, and I was I was night calving for my for my grandpa, and so I was just had twelve hours a day in the dark by myself, uh, pretty much doing nothing, and so I, what I started to do was just tell uh, tell the stories to my laptop, kind of like audio record them. And uh, I started doing that, and I got to thinking about it. And there, there had been some articles written about this stuff, and uh, I was thinking that if if I put the if I let somebody else write the book for me, and it comes out and I don't like it or it doesn't do any good, um, I I would probably not be able to live with myself knowing that I was capable of writing the book and didn't. And just took the easy way out of having somebody else write it for me. And and I think that's different. Like if you're a super busy person and you don't have the time to write a book and you hire a ghostwriter, that's that's one thing. But just hiring a ghostwriter for the sake of getting out of doing it yourself, um, at, at least for me, I couldn't live with that. Knowing that if it didn't if it didn't do well or I wasn't happy with the finished product, there's no going back and fixing that. So it was about that time that I, I stopped doing the audio recordings and I just kind of made an outline of all the stories that I wanted to tell and I started typing them. And I typed 1,000 uh, words a day for the whole calving season, and, which seems like a lot, but that's like an hour-ish or a little bit less and um, to write that much. And so I just started typing them out, one a day. And um, calving season's only three months long. 90 days so I didn't get the book done in one year I got it done it was spread out over at least two calving seasons maybe three because then I would shelf it when I was done I never could find the time to write after calving season so I'd shelf it for nine months and not look at it not think about it come back to it the following calving season and get a bunch more of it done and then the editing process was the same once once I felt like I had a finished manuscript um, I, I just edited a thousand words a day throughout the calving season. then I used, um, a couple of different types of software to go through and catch all the easy mistakes. And then I use some friends of mine who are way smarter than I am to go through and, and read the last couple versions to catch the mistakes that the computer didn't. And there's still a handful of mistakes, even in the printed books now that people have been finding, but, uh, that's it it was all done ranching. A lot of it was, it was either done in a calving barn or in a pickup with wet soggy calves at my feet.
1: That's really cool. Um, so before we let you go, can you kind of let people know what's next from here? Are you going to be going, you know, international again and, and working on different ranches? Are you sticking around here in the States for a bit? What's, what's on your, uh, 2023 plan? So
0: 2023, I've uh, I don't have any big international plans. Um, I I have ideas of where I would like to go next, but uh, this summer is pretty much dedicated to the book tour stuff and and just trying to get my book out there and push it. Um, I'm not sure when this podcast will be out, but May 19th through 21st, I'll be in the Jackson Hole, Wyoming area, doing a couple different. Um, signings there. I've already done a couple down in in Texas, and they went far better than I ever could have imagined. Um, And then this summer, I'll be traveling all over Colorado, Wyoming, Montana, doing uh, different book signing events, trying to kind of coordinate with other events that might be happening around Wyoming. Um, And it kind of they kind of go together, uh, and it's worked well marketing wise where I've, uh, I, sh- I shoot music videos also for cowboy musicians. So, um, a- all the book signings that I've done and I plan for all the ones going forward, they also have live music kind of coupled together. So it's, it's a show and a book signing. And I, and I get together with some of the artists that I've worked with in the past and we do like a, it's bigger than just me sitting at a table signing books. It's a whole, whole show. So this summer, that's what I'll be doing. I'll be shooting music videos, helping my grandpa on the ranch and every single weekend, all summer for the next three months, I'll be at different events, trying to push the book and get it out there.
1: Well, it sounds like you have a really busy uh, year planned, um, but Full of really exciting things um before we let you go where can people follow along um whether they want to come to one of your book signings or your tour um or just see what cool adventures you're up to
0: yeah uh instagram is is pretty much where all my stuff goes um that my instagram is the lost cowboy uh that's also the title of the book the lost cowboy um the, the music stuff, if people are interested in seeing the kind of cowboy musicians, that's called Dusty Vaquero. Um, but both of those, Instagram, Facebook, uh, thelostcowboy.com, uh, you can find my book on there and other information like that. Um, but if you want to see day-to-day stuff, it's usually on Instagram, on the Lost Cowboy Instagram.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on and talking with us. Um, I know I really enjoyed hearing about your international travels and just what riding and, and horse culture is like in the different continents and, and countries that you got to visit because, you know, we're so stuck in what we are in the United States. It's, it's hard to branch out and it's, it's really cool to hear from someone who's had first person experience doing some of these really fun things. So thank you so yeah, much. Thank
0: you. Glad we could finally get together on this.
1: Once again, we'd like to thank the Seen Through Horses campaign for sponsoring this episode of The Ride. Thank you guys for tuning into The Ride podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode and please be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Horse & Rider Magazine on social media and find us at horseandrider.com to see all the cool things that we're up to. And if you have any comments or questions, please be sure to hit us up at rider at We want to hear from you guys. And if you like what you're listening to, please be sure to leave us a review on iTunes.